0: Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com.
1: Like I said uh, earlier, I've never taught what we're going to uh, look at today. It's, uh, it's kind of nervy, ner- uh, nervous, I'm nervous a little bit because uh, like it's, 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 it's uh, new territory for me, but at the same time, I think it's just so powerful when we really consider um, the real purpose, the real reason behind which why uh, God himself was clothed in flesh, as the Son of God, to become a man, to enter into our realm. And so with this uh, Christmas season, we're going to talk today uh, a passage out of the Old Testament that really outlines for us why Jesus uh, came, the whole purpose, the whole reason. And then next week, uh, we're going to look at a passage in the New Testament that talks about the virgin birth and the big question that you may have, or maybe you haven't had, hopefully you'll have it next week when you think about it, is uh, why a virgin birth? I mean, that's a big stumbling block for a lot of unbelievers. Really? Someone who is a virgin had a baby? I mean, that doesn't happen. I mean, that's, why would God do it that way um, when it would just be so much easier to believe if that wasn't the case, so many people that I've tried to share the good news with, you know, I've said, really, uh, I mean, virgins don't get pregnant, and so that's too big of a deal. That's too big of a threshold for me to kind of just believe, so why would God do it that way? Why did that have to be the way of it? We're going to take a look at that next week, so. But this week, if you want to take your Bible, we're going to go to the book of Daniel. Did you my text last night, Steve? I I told uh, Steve, Steve's son's named Daniel, I said, hey, I'm going to be speaking out of Daniel. So maybe Daniel will be interested in what Daniel has to say. But we're going to be in the book of Daniel. Some quick history about what's going on in the book of of Daniel, what's happening in the time of Daniel. The nation of Israel has, uh, we've been through King David, we've been through King Solomon. The nation of Israel has actually split. There's like a civil war, if you think about it. There was a north and a south. Uh, kind of like in America, but this was Israel. The north was called Israel, the south was called Judah. And at a certain point in, in, in their history, the northern part, Israel, was actually conquered by this group called the Assyrians, and they conquered them and took them off into what we would call captivity, bondage. The southern part, called Judah, they stuck around for a few more generations, but ultimately, the southern part, Judah, where the city of Jerusalem was, was also conquered this time by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians, they came in and they utterly destroyed Jerusalem. Jerusalem at the time of Solomon was one of the most fantastic cities in the world. In fact, the queen of Sheba, who was down in Africa, she had heard about what was what Solomon had done in, in in Jerusalem? The gold, you know, covered temples, the gold covered palaces, and this fantastic, you know, city. And so she went to look at it herself, and went after she saw it for herself. Her report back was, "Oh my, not even the half has truly been told about how fantastic Jerusalem really is." And so Jerusalem was an amazing, amazing city in the height of the is the the. Jer- the Jewish empire, the Israeli empire. But by this time in their history, the Babylonians came in, and if you can imagine all of that beauty, all of that grandeur, all of that wonderfulness being completely burned, completely destroyed, completely laid to waste. And all the people, or a lot of the people, were actually dispersed throughout the Babylonian world empire and many, including David, were actually taken back to the capital city called Babylon. And so it's a, pretty, it's a pretty sad time in the history of Israel. It's a really sad time because they don't even have a city. They don't even have a, a nation. There's no borders. There's no city walls for Jerusalem. And the people of Israel don't, aren't even together. They're spread around. All the Jews have been spread around the Babylonian world And so you have a few here and a few here and they're all spread out and there's no national unity and it's just a very, very sad time in the history of Israel. And the reason why this happened, the reason why this Babylonian captivity, this this exile happened was because Israel continued to not keep its end of the bargain called the Old Covenant. If you remember... God promised, we've talked about this a lot, God promised that if you, Israel, do everything that I tell you to do, if you do everything I tell you to do, then I will bless you, I will increase you, I will multiply you, I will be your husband, he says. But if you don't do what I say, if you don't do everything that I've written, then the deal's off. You'll be cursed. And so... That's where Israel found itself. They had not continued in their side of the bargain. They continued rejecting the precepts of the Lord. They continued rejecting his commands. They continued to do what was right in their own eyes. And God even sent prophets. We'll see that in a second. He sent a bunch of prophets to say, guys, watch out. This this exile, this, this rejection is coming. You better watch out. You better not pout. You better not cry. I'm telling you why. I mean, it's coming And they continued to reject, they even killed the prophets, wanting to do their own thing. And so ultimately, that resulted in the whole city being destroyed, no stone left on its end, and Israel being utterly embarrassed. Imagine, imagine with me, being the most powerful, most influential nation on the world under King David and King Solomon, and now just... I don't know, a couple hundred years later, a few generations afterwards, utter destruction, utter desolation. You know, desolation means it's just a wasted town. So it's a pretty sad day in the life of Israel. And so Daniel, in Daniel chapter nine, he is remembering that there was a promise, even in all of the rejection and the problems, there was a promise made that this exile would only last a certain amount of time. And that's where we pick up here in chapter nine, starting in verse one. If you have your Bible app, you can open that up and it has all the verses there with you. Um, Or you can just follow it on here. Or if you have a paper Bible, you can certainly follow along there. But we're gonna read through verse one through 24 pretty quickly. Because the big thing we're going to uh, highlight in our few minutes we have remaining is verse 24 and 25. And hopefully my voice stays with us. It's getting a little froggier and froggier uh, as we go. So this is Daniel in captivity in Babylon, he is a glorified slave of the king of, uh, of uh, the, the kingdom of Babylon. and now. He says, in the first year, verse 1, of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, verse 2, I, Daniel, observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years." That's a lot of long words and big words to say this. Daniel was reading in 2nd Chronicles. You could read in 2nd Chronicles if you want to. 2nd Chronicles chapter 36, Daniel was reading and he read, stumbled upon 2nd Chronicles 36 where Jeremiah was right where the promise was made to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, listen, destruction is going to come upon Jerusalem because of the rebellion of Jerusalem. It's going to be utter destruction, and this destruction will last for seven seven Sabbaths, a total of 70 years. So 70 years will pass from when Jerusalem gets destroyed and then when Jerusalem gets to be rebuilt, 70 years. And so Daniel stumbles upon this as he's just reading his chronicles from Jeremiah, and he says, wait a second. That 70 years is getting pretty close. He's doing the math, and he's figuring, wow, that, that's getting here pretty soon. And remember, why did, Jesus, why did God, why did he reject, why did he send Israel into captivity? It's because of their sin, their wickedness. They, they didn't keep their end of the bargain. The contract, the covenant that they were under was, Israel, you do everything perfectly, and I will continue with you. But if you don't, I'm not gonna continue with you which fortunately, I don't want to give the end of the sermon away, that's not the relationship that we have with God. But that's what Israel had with God during this time. And so Daniel is reading, imagine that, you know, you and your whole people group have been dispersed away from Jerusalem. You're in all these different places and you realize, wait a second, we're getting pretty close to the end of this rejection, the end of this desolation, the end of this disbursement and so if you're like Daniel, you're thinking, man, we need to get our act together. We need to get our, our stuff in gear here. We need to undo all of the things that got us in this place so we don't have another 70 years of rejection, a 70 years of, of exile. So, I mean, Daniel's not a dumb dude. He's very, very smart. Belteshazzar is what he's called in the, in the kingdom of, of Babylon. What did Daniel do? Daniel said, hey, It was our sinning, our iniquities, our rejection of the Lord that got us here. Well, gummit, I'm going to do what I need to do, Daniel, to get that sinning and rejection rejection and wickedness atoned for, taken care of, because I don't want to continue this. This is embarrassing. I mean, we were the great nation of Israel, and now look at us. So, verse 3, I, this is David, I gave my attention to the Lord to seek him, By prayer and supplication with fasting sackcloth and ashes. In other words, he got busy going through every single possible potential sinful action that he could ever have done, anyone that he ever thought of, anyone he ever knew, any Jewish sin that he ever could have remembered and thought about. He now spent the time in sackcloth and ashes. Like, that does not sound comfortable spending time confessing the sins of the people and his own sins so that God would hear him, forgive him, so that they would not continue in the 70 years again. He's getting serious about this. Verse four, so I prayed to the Lord Almighty and I confessed. I said, alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments, meaning you are doing you've done what you said you would do you would keep your commandments to you you would keep your covenant your steadfastness your protection if we would have done our part verse 5 but we have sinned we have committed iniquities we have acted wickedly we have rebelled even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances so Daniel's just calling a spade a spade. This is the reality. This is why we're sitting here in Babylon and and I'm sitting here in the middle of my fireplace in these ashes with this burlap sack on because we have rejected you. He's calling a spade a spade. And I put these, these words in red because he's realizing these are the things that has got him in this situation. Sin, iniquity, rebellion, wickedness, turning aside. Moreover, I mean, he just lets it all hang out. Moreover, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Remember, prophets Amos, uh, Jonah, uh, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, all these weird names that we find at the end of the Old Testament, all of them except for two have already happened. All of these uh, prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets, all of them have happened except for two of them, and all of them were saying, guys, get your act together, fly straight, realize the course that, you have, that you're on because you're rejecting the Lord. Sometimes the people would kind of get their act together, but most of the time they would say, who are you? We are Israel, God would never reject us, God would never disperse us, we are strong, we are Israel. And so he's saying, we've even rejected the ones that you sent to tell us what you need from us, what you want from us, the prophets. So God would try to speak to the people through these prophets who spoke in your name. They spoke to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, and all the people of the land. So These prophets came, say, you better stop sinning. You better stop. But we rejected them. We didn't listen to them, the prophets. Remember that. We'll come back to that at the end. Verse seven, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord. So he's saying, we are guilty, we are in shame, but to us, open shame. He's—he's. He's, I think he's changed his mind. He's realized what is at stake. And as it is this day, to the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all of Israel, to those who are nearby, nearby where? In Babylon, and to those who are far away into the countries which you have driven them. All of us, because of our unfaithful deeds, which we have committed against you, all of us are in open shame. The ones that still kind of hang out in the ash heap of Jerusalem, us who are in Babylon and those who have been scattered around the world, we are in shame because of our sin and rebellion. Open shame belongs to us, O Lord. This is, again, this is Daniel just being honest with God. To our kings, open shame belongs, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned. There it is again. I should have put that in red because that's important. He's recognizing the issue. We have sinned against you. Before we go any further, it's important for us to remember, is Daniel in the old covenant or is he in the new covenant? Say it loudly, please. Old covenant. It's important to remember. He's in the old covenant. Uh, What are we on? Uh, verse, Verse nine. To the Lord, our God belongs, belong compassion and forgiveness, and we have rebelled against him. Nor have we obeyed the voice of the Lord to walk in his teachings, which he set before us through his servants, the prophets. And he's saying the same thing over and over. He realizes that we have not done what we were supposed to do. Indeed, all Israel, The whole nation, every boy, every girl, adult, kings, uh, every single person has transgressed your law, the law, the Mosaic law, and turned aside, not obeying your voice. So the curse that has been poured out on us, what's the curse? This rejection, this disbursement, the destruction of their City, their great, wonderful, holy city. The curse has been poured out on us along with the oath which was written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, for we have sinned against him. I already said this, I'll say it really quickly because we've got to move on. But what Daniel is saying, God, you you are exercising the part of the covenant that you are rightfully exercising because we didn't keep our part of the covenant. In this covenant that we said we would do it all, we gladly entered into this old covenant. It said, if we continue in this and we do everything faithfully, then you will bless us and you, we will be a nation before you always. But if we sin against you, if we fail to keep our end of the bargain, you will reject us. That's the curse. And what Daniel is saying, God, you are righteous righteous in doing this. You are just in doing this because you are, this is the terms of the contract, the terms of the agreement that we signed back on Mount Sinai with Moses. Verse 12, thus he has confirmed his word which he has spoken against us and against our rulers who ruled us. He's just doing what he said he was going to do to bring on us great calamity, embarrassment, for under the whole heaven, there has, been, there has not been anything done like was done to Jerusalem. That's a powerful statement. He's saying of all the wars, of all the destructions of cities, nothing has ever happened in all of human history like what happened in Jerusalem. If you're really interested in what that looks like and feels like, read the book of Lamentations written by Jeremiah, where he kind of recounts the glory of God leaving the city as the Babylonians are coming in and completely, utterly destroying it because of Israel continuously not keeping their end of the bargain. This desolation of Jerusalem, it's beyond our wildest imagination what they did to the city. Total destruction by the Babylonians. Verse 13, as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord. In other, all this has happened, and we're still rejecting you. We're still running to our own ways. Yet we have not sought the favor of our Lord, our God, by turning from our iniquities and giving attention to your truth. We're, we still haven't learned our lesson, I hear Daniel saying. Verse 14, therefore, The Lord has kept the calamity in store. Because we haven't turned, because we haven't learned, we still are being rejected. We're still in this desolate place. He has kept this calamity in store and brought it upon us for the Lord our God is righteous. He's just with respect to all of his deeds, which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. And now, verse 15, O Lord our God, the one who has brought your people out of the land of Egypt. So Daniel is remembering this great day of deliverance that happened to his forefathers years and years and years ago when Israel was in bondage and slavery to Egypt. He's saying, you're the one who brought them out of that land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself. As it is this day, we have sinned and we have been wicked. O Lord, in accordance with all your righteous acts. This is verse 16. Let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem. Let now this anger and wrath turn away from your holy mountain. Perhaps that's referring to Sinai, but I think more so it's referring to Israel, to Jerusalem. For Because of our sins and the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to all those around us. Here's what Daniel's kind of saying. God, your name, your reputation is on the line here. God, you're the one who made a name for yourself by bringing this little ragtag group out of Egypt and to where everyone in the Canaanite world, they all feared you because of what you did to the Egyptians. And now, now who fears you? Because look at how dispersed and how insignificant we are as a nation. So turn your eyes back to us, he's asking. Forgive us of our sins so that your name can be great again. So now verse 17, our God, listen. He's begging him. Listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. And for your sake, O Lord, for your benefit, let your face shine upon your desolate sanctuary. Now, let's put our old covenant Jewish hat on for a second. What sanctuary is he talking about? Any Any thoughts? The temple, yeah, the temple, Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. He said, Let your face Shine back upon that because again, if you read Lamentations, it's this picture of the face of God shining away from it. His Shekinah glory, leaving the holy of holies. And and uh, uh, Daniel, I'll get it out. He's saying, God, let this be a day because we are repenting. We're turning from our sins. Let this be a day where once again, your holy temple, your holy city, your holy sanctuary is the object of your affections. Yet once again, Daniel wants God to restore Jerusalem, to restore or the temple back to its previous glory days. O oh God, he continues, verse eighteen, incline your ear and hear me. I mean, he's just being raw with the Lord. Hear me, please, hear me. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name, the city of God, Jerusalem. For we are not presenting. Our supplications before you on account of any merit of our own, but on account of your great compassion. I love that. Even though Daniel knows that they, what they got from them violating the old covenant is totally just, it's totally what they deserve, what he is saying here is, God, we are appealing to you not because we have done something fantastic, we're appealing to you because you introduced yourself to Moses as the God of all mercy and the God of all compassion. Before you gave him the law, before you, on the, on the, on the burning bush, you declared yourself the God of compassion. And that is what we are appealing to, not, not ourselves. We've learned from our forefathers. At least Daniel's saying, I've learned from my daddy and what he did, and I'm coming to you not because I can do something, but because of who you are. I love it. I love it. Even in the old covenant, he's appealing not to their abilities, but to the faithfulness and the compassion, the mercy of God himself. Oh, Lord, hear. Here it is. Oh, Lord, forgive. Wipe this blot away. Forgive us. Oh, Lord, listen and take action. For your own sake, oh my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. So Daniel, E-L at the end, I have to confess, I don't know what Dan-E means. Maybe someone else does. Do you, Steve, by chance? You named your son this. Um, okay, somebody, somebody can Google it. What does Daniel mean? When You can shout out after, you know, Google works for you. But E-L at the end, that means that's the name for God in the Hebrew, So even Daniel's name was something of God. And almost every Jew uh, had EL at the end of their name, if you think about it, if 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 you recount many of the names of the Old Testament. And so even their names were the name of God. And so Daniel is saying, as long as we are being destroyed and being dispersed and in open shame because we bear your name, it is your very name that is at stake here. So he's appealing to the name of God, to the compassion of God. Anybody got that, Daniel, before we move on? God is my judge. So his very own name refers back to God being the judge. Awesome. Verse 20. Now, so that's the end of his prayer, okay? Okay. Can you, can you imagine Dan, Daniel sitting there in his fireplace in the ashes with, with burlap sack of, on him and complete, he's been fasting, he hasn't eaten anything for days, he's, he's weak, He's pouring his heart out. He's realizing the error of his ways and of the the nation. And he's saying, God, if you don't do something here, we're just gonna be complete toast. There's still hope and we're appealing not because we have done something to deserve it, but we're appealing to your very own compassions. And Daniel knows that there was a promise that this desolation, that this rejection was gonna end 70 years after it began. And he's doing the math. And he's realizing that time is near. And so he wants to lead a, a revival, if you will, for the people to restore back the Israel of old. Now, verse 20, while I was speaking and praying, while I was confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, is Daniel in the old covenant or the new covenant? Old covenant, okay, important. So many Christians go to passages like this and say, see guys, here's how we have revival. Here's how we get a fresh wind from the Lord is we need to sit and fast and sit in our ash, ash heaps of despair and confess all of our sins in order for God to move in us. And uh, if that's our thinking, then we are completely confused about what Jesus has done, which we'll get into here in a few verses. And presenting my supplication My prayers before the Lord in behalf of the holy mountain, talking about Jerusalem, of my God. So was Daniel's focus on a supernatural spiritual revival? No. Daniel's focus was on just simply restoring the nation to what it once was, this nation of, of Israel, of power and preeminence, and having a name for God once again in the world. Verse 21 and while I was speaking in prayer, then the man, Gabriel, Gabriel, whom we know is an angel of the Lord, who also came to Joseph and to Mary. He's a messenger of God to man. The man, Gabriel, whom I had seen in a vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. So in the midst of, in, the, in his weakest moment. Remember, he hasn't eaten. He's fasting. He, he, he's, he's emotionally drained as he's been thinking about his sinfulness and, and the rejection of the Lord. He hasn't eaten. He's weary, extremely. He gave me instruction. Gabriel gave Daniel instruction and talked with me. And this is what Gabriel said. This is so cool. Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. In other words, oh, Daniel, listen, if you only knew what really is about to happen, if you only knew, and I'm going to share with you just a little bit about what's going to happen. You're praying that a building gets rebuilt in Jerusalem. You're pouring your heart out to the Lord in confession of your sins so that a city could be rebuilt on a map in the Middle East. But what Gabriel is about to say, remember, see that E-L at the end of Gabriel? I don't know what Gabriel means either, but that's something of the Lord. What Gabriel is about to announce is that this is something so much bigger than a city, something so much bigger than a temple, something so much bigger than even a nation called Israel. Watch this. This is so cool. At the beginning of your supplications, Gabriel continues, the command or the word was issued. You know the God said Gabriel, he is turning himself towards me, he's repenting of his sins. Go to him and tell him what this is really all about. And I have come to tell you, Gabriel says, For you are highly esteemed. So give heed to this message and gain understanding from this vision. And here it is. Verse 24. This is so cool. Seventy weeks have been declared for your people and for your holy city. Let's pause right there. We're gonna take, we're gonna slow it down for a few minutes we have remaining. I was really just looking at this one verse for the next, like, 10 minutes. Seventy weeks have been declared for your people and for your holy city. The Hebrew word, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar. I only took three semesters of it. Uh, Greek's more my thing, uh, so I had to do a lot of, like, concordant stuff, you know. But the word weeks is literally the word that means seven periods, periods of seven, which makes sense why they translate weeks, because how many days are in a week? Seven, yeah. But all throughout the Old Testament, this word is also translated periods of seven, because that's just simply what it means. So what the angel is saying, what God is saying is, listen, 70 periods of seven are declared for your people and for the holy city of Jerusalem. So, From a certain starting point, which he'll tell us in the next verse, for 77 years, somebody do the math for us, 400 and what? 490 years. From from, from a certain starting point, which he'll tell us in the next verse, for 490 years, 70 periods of seven years, 490 years, your people Israel and the holy city will be before me. I will be faithful, I will continue with the city and with the people, exclusive. But at the end of that time, 490 years, things are gonna change. Things are gonna change beyond your wildest imagination, Daniel. Daniel, by the way, he's about 500 or so years before Christ, 450 to 500 years before Christ. Gabriel, speaking for the Lord, goes on to explain what's going to happen at the end of this 490-year period. Number one, here's what's going to happen. At the end of the 77s, the first thing that's going to happen is there's going to be a finishing of the transgression. 70 weeks have been declared for your people and for your holy city to finish the Transgression. So far, Daniel has been talking about all of the transgression that the nation of Israel has been doing. And the, Gabriel is saying in 490 weeks, 400, I mean 490 years, the transgression, transgression itself will be finished. Finished means it's shut up. The word in Hebrew, it means to be shut up. It means to, to be withheld. There will be no more transgressing in 490 years. Can you imagine being Daniel and scratching your head? How is that possible? How is it possible that in 490 years, this very thing that we're sitting here in Babylon as a result of our transgression is not gonna be anymore? In 490 years, there will be an end, a finishing of transgressions. Transgression means falling out of line. There will be no more falling out of line. In 490 years. Secondly, he says, in 490 years, in the 77s, it's been declared for the people. Secondly, to put an end, to make an end of sin. At the end of this 490 years, sin itself will end. The word end means sealed in the, in the Hebrew. It means it'll be sealed up and it won't be able to continue sinning. There will be no more sinning after 490 years. Now, somebody, before, before we get there, somebody say, somebody help us, what was it that Daniel and all of the people of Israel were in this exile as a result of? They're what? They're sinning. Their sin had driven, had had, had resulted in God's disbursement of them from the holy city, and the holy city had become desolate. And what Gabriel's message is, is hey, listen, in 490 years, sin won't even be counted anymore. How can that be? It'll be sealed up. How is this possible? It'll be quarantined, is the picture. It'll be sealed, like you seal off a a, a jar where, where the liquid can't come. It'll be sealed, it'll be contained, quarantined what is this? Well, there's actually a few more things. Oops. Let's see, where am I at? Okay. Number three, after 490 years, Daniel, not only will the transgression be finished, sin will end, but there will actually be an atonement for iniquity. Some of your translations use a different word, the word reconciliation for iniquities. In other words, all of the iniquities, all of the uh, wrongdoings, all of the guilt and the shame. Remember, guilt and shame has been used by Daniel numerous times. We are people, our kings, our, our princes. We are in open shame. Remember him saying that before earlier when we were reading through it? He's saying at this point, all of the shame, all the iniquity, there will be a reconciliation. There will be an atonement. The word atonement has this idea of it will be set right. It will be blotted away. It will be taken care of, covered over, reconciled. All of that guilt, all of that unrighteousness, all of that non-okayness with God, it will be set straight in 490 weeks, 490 years in 77s. You think that's enough? No, there's three more. He says, "In I had to put it on another slide because there's so many of these things. Seventy weeks have been declared for your people in your holy city, and here's the next thing: to bring in everlasting righteousness. So at the end of the seventy weeks, what's going to happen is eternal, perpetual righteousness will actually be ushered in. How many times did Daniel in his little prayer? continuously confess that they are wicked, that they are defiled, that they are um, um, uh, uh, rejected rightly because of their rejection of God. They were, he was confessing that they're not right, that they're not righteous. And what the Gabriel's message is coming, he's saying in 490 years, there's gonna be something given, brought. If it's brought, is it something that's earned? Is it something that's deserved? No, it's a gift. You come to my house, On Christmas morning, and you bring to Christmas morning, you bring a gift. Is that something that I earn and I deserve? No, it's something that you gratefully, generously, graciously have given me. You've brought it. And he's saying in 490 years, there's going to be a bringing of something that you don't deserve. Perpetual rightness. Continual, everlasting okayness with God is coming your way, Daniel. Now, look at this. Also, oh, this is so cool. Also, after 490 years, Daniel, for your city, your people, something else is going to get sealed up. Prophecy and vision. This is the same word sealed up that he used for sin. Remember, sin is going to be sealed up. It's going to end. This is the same verb, sealed up. Visions and prophecy. Prophecy. Now, why in 490 years should visions and prophecy be ending, be sealed up? Well, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves because we're going to see in the next verse really what uh, Gabriel is referring to. And I mean, you should already know, I assume, what he's referring to, the coming of the Christ in 490 years. But in case you hadn't picked up on that, that's what the next verse is going to clearly tell us. But what's so cool is that during the old covenant, we've already talked about this, I mentioned it. Intentionally, is that the Lord spoke to the people through what? We've talked, we've seen this. The words up there, it's in red. Through what? Prophets, through people, through men who got selected and said, hey, Joey, I can't talk to all of them because, you know what, they're just a bunch of rebels, so I'm going to give you my message, and you go talk with them. You go deal with them. And so Joe, Joey turns his chair around and says, hey, guys, this is what God said. And then they reject Joey because they care less about what God says. That was the pattern. And so what he's saying is there's going to come a day, 490 years, where you don't have to worry about what prophets are going to say to you. He's not going to speak to you by means of prophets and visions anymore. Why? why would he not do that? Somebody open up your Bible, please, real fast. Sorry, I should have mentioned this earlier to Hebrews chapter one. You got it over there. Maybe Hebrews chapter one. I see some Bibles. Hebrews chapter one. And somebody read verse one and verse two. This is so radical. Do you, do you have it? Maybe Katie, somebody with a, with a Bible. I see paper ones. I see digital ones. Okay, so in times of, so Hebrews is written to the Jews, but this is in the New Covenant. This is, this is in, the new, in the, 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 new, the new Covenant. He's saying, the writer of Hebrews is saying, in years past, the pattern of the way God talked to us was through prophets. And every Hebrew boy and girl reading the book of Hebrews, is like, yeah, I know that. I know Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Haggai. What's the last one, Malachi. That was a joke, but anyways. Um, but you say, that's how he has talked for generations, through prophets. But now, in these last days, in these most recent days, verse 2, he no longer speaks to us through prophets. In other words, the writer of Hebrews is saying, God's use of prophets has ended. It's been sealed up. Why? Does God not speak to us anymore? Oh, he does. And he says, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his very own son. And the, the, the Greek there doesn't simply mean he has spoken to us by means of his son. It's, it's this idea that the very language that God himself now communicates to us is the very language of son. He speaks to us, through Jesus, by means of Jesus, but he speaks to us in this language of sonship, in every right as sons that we now have, that we looked at last week in our series on as he is, so are we now in this world. He speaks to us not by means of other men, but he speaks to us in this language eternal of his very own son within us. Can you imagine being Daniel and thinking like scratching your head, like, For generations, you've spoken to us through prophets and visions, and you're telling me that all that's going to end? And if you only knew, it's going to end because something so much better is going to come about, that the Christ himself, the Messiah himself, is going to live within him to teach him, to lead him, to guide him. I'm afraid that in our day and age in modern Christianity, we have totally missed that. We're hanging on every word that a teacher will teach, a pastor will say, instead of realizing that God himself speaks to us by this language of son within us. Jesus, in Matthew 23, he, said, he says, don't call, don't call people rabbi. Rabbi means teacher. Don't call anyone teacher. Call no man your teacher, for it is the Lord himself who is your teacher. We've got got a minute. Let me go over here on the side. This is a little side. This is free. You don't have to pay for this, all right? Pastor. Pastor is a spiritual gift, pastoring. Just like encouraging, just like uh, giving, just like evangelizing, it's a spiritual gift. But for some reason, we If 2,000 years of history, have taken this spiritual gift of pastor, and we've turned it into a title for people. So now we call somebody Pastor Joe, Pastor Sam. Now, they might have the spiritual gift of pastor, pastoring, which simply means shepherding, leading, encouraging, directing. But why in the world would we elevate that to a title? Raise your hand if you think you have the spiritual gift of encouragement. Anybody? I have the spiritual okay, Bob? Anybody else spiritual gifts okay few? Okay, encouragement. You just feel very inclined to bring encouragement to the body of Christ. Awesome. Has any one of you put on your email encourager Sandy? Encourager Tom as your title? No. Why not? Because it's a gift for the body. And so why do we do that with the title pastor? I don't know. And I'm just saying, why should we? Because it certainly isn't what the New Testament does. It's a gift. In fact, many of you may very well have a better giftedness of pastoring than I have. So let's realize that it's not a man, a woman, a teacher, a pastor that is our leader. Who is your pastor? Who is your shepherd? Jesus Christ himself, not me. And the more we can realize the power of that, the more we come into the unity of the faith and the son of God who loved us and gave himself for us and watch out darkness because here comes the light. But as long as we have this elevated place of pastors and laity, we're never gonna be the body of Christ that he desires for us to be. Okay, off that, back over here. So he said, seal up the prophecy. Seal it up. The prophecy is no longer going to come from people to, to man, from a man to people. It's going to be someone, Jesus Himself, which he doesn't explain that here, but we know from reading Hebrews that lives within. And here's the last one. Here's the last. After 490 years, transgression has ended, sin has ended, uh, what was it? Iniquities are ending. Righteousness is coming in as a gift. There's no more, what did prophet you know Sam have to say? It's now Christ himself is my, my teacher, my guide, my leader. The spirit of Christ in me is guiding me in all truth, as Jesus said he would. And the very last thing here, this is so awesome, and to anoint, in 490 years, there will be an anointing of the most holy. In the new American standard and in others, the word place is added, but that's not in the original Hebrew. It's the same phrase for the holy of holies. There will be an anointing of the holy of holies in 490 years. Now, what do you think Daniel is thinking about? He's thinking about the temple. He's thinking about the building. He's thinking about, yes, finally, there's gonna be an anointed holy place where God is gonna reside, but what do we know? We know something better. We we know the rest of the story. Anointing, by the way, is just a really, really cool word, word for the covering of. In fact, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, the word painting, it's translated painting a lot. When they painted, it's the same word for anointing. It means to slather it all over. It's really cool. I like that word, slather. And so what he's saying is, when this 490 years passes, here's something else that's gonna happen. There's gonna be a, a slathering of holiness. Most holiness. Now let's think about this. Use our minds a little bit that God gave us. In this temple of the old covenant, the Old Testament, in this temple... Where was the presence of God? Where was the mercy seat? Where was the the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim facing each other, looking, staring down at the commandments that were inside of the Ark of the Covenant? Where was this in the temple? What was the room called? The Holy of Holies, the most holy. The very same phrase used here. The presence of God in the temple resided in the holy of holies. So what in the world is Gabriel saying? That there's going to be an anointing of a most holy place, a most holy a holy of holies? What is he saying? Listen, I could be totally wrong on this, and I admit that, but the holy of holies is the place where God himself dwelled in the Jewish temple. It's where the ark, where the mercy seat, where the cherubim existed and rested and sat. The holy of holies is where God himself dwells. True? Now think with me with our new covenant minds. Where does God himself dwell now? In us. Say it with some conviction. In us. Where does the God of all the universe now reside in us and so that means us have been anointed as the most holy of holies you say whoa wait a second wait a second that's just too radical you mean I am the 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 better I am the better holy of holies the temple was a shadow and a symbol a, a foreshadowing of something to come and you're saying that I am Am that because he has anointed me as this most holy place? I'm saying, yeah. How can this be? Imagine being Daniel. How could this possibly be in 490 years? A most holy, a new, a living stones, as Paul talks about. Not, not stones made with bricks, but living stones are now going to be the very place where the glory of God now resides. How can this B, the Holy One has made you his most holy dwelling place. There is a place within you, the core of who you are, the new man, through a new birth that is as holy as the Holy One himself Go to the book of Acts with me for a second. The book of Acts, Realm chapter 7 or so. A guy named Stephen, who was a follower of Christ, he's actually a, a deacon, a servant in the church. He's arrested, he's captured by the Jews. And he starts to give an account, he starts to give a defense of of what he knows to be truth. And he gives a history of the Israelite people going all the way back to Moses and the history of their unfaithfulness and breaking the covenants and not being not continuing in the covenant. He gives their history. And then he comes and he brings them up to present day where at that moment in Acts 9, it was just a few years before when Jesus had been crucified. And he says that the very one, the very Messiah, the very God, God himself in the flesh, whom you crucified, pointing his little finger at these Sadducees and Pharisees, whom you crucified has now been made ruler, king, lord of all. And God himself, this is Stephen, Acts chapter, what is it, seven, eight, something along those lines. And God himself no longer, no longer resides in a building, For he has made his dwelling in the very heart of man. When Stephen said that, the religious leaders, their teeth clenched, their eyes became like fire, and they picked up heavy stones and they began throwing them at Stephen until Stephen died. It wasn't the recounting of their iniquities that got them so mad, though, who likes to have your iniquities recounted, your iniquities recounted, but it was the moment at which Stephen said, the straw that broke the camel's back, was when Stephen said that God Almighty no longer lives in a building, but he now lives in those of us who believe upon the Son himself. And they couldn't take it. These guys, they started taking their coats off so they could throw the rocks a little bit harder. And they laid their coats down at the feet of a guy named Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who a few years later was riding, riding his car, um, riding a whatever well, on the way, whatever he's riding, a camel, a horse, I don't know, to Damascus, And on the way to Damascus, we know this, this is, I think, is in chapter nine of Acts. The Lord himself appeared to to Saul of Tarsus and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To which we might think, when did Saul ever persecute Jesus? Saul was never mentioned in the crucifixion of Jesus. But see, Jesus has done a work to where his life and your life, as a believer, have become one in such a way that when you, as a believer, and these believers in the book of Acts were being uh, tortured at the hands of Saul of Tarsus, Jesus Christ Himself sees you so one with Himself that when you, the, the church, was being persecuted, Jesus Christ Himself is being persecuted. Why are you persecuting me? that opened Saul's eyes to see the truth of what was really at stake, that God didn't live in a temple made by stones. Because if God lived in a temple made by stones, then what in the world was God doing on the road to Damascus? And in that moment, Saul, his eyes were opened and he saw the reality of what this really was. And he, his Jewish, his Greek name, Paul, that we know him more by, Paul the Apostle. And so in this 490 years, sin will no longer be accounted. There will be no longer an accounting for sins, iniquities, or transgressions. There will be everlasting righteousness brought in. There will be a sealing up of visions by men because there will be a revealer of life that lives within, and there will be an anointing of a new holy place, not a brick and mortar building, not a, not a temple, a sanctuary in Israel, but a people a people, living stones. Verse 25, our last verse. So you are to know, Gabriel tells Daniel, you're to know and you're to discern that from the issuing of a decree. So when is this 490 years going to start? Daniel wants to get get his calculator out. Well, not calculator, calendar. He wants to get his calendar out. When is this going to start? And so Gabriel says, from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That's when the timeline starts 490 years. From that point until Messiah the Prince comes. That's the 490 years. So, whenever this decree by the rulers of your People, Darius, as he mentioned in verse one, whenever they say, hey, go and rebuild Jerusalem, you start the calendar because 490, 77s later, this will all take place. Well, he says when the Messiah, the prince, from the decree to restore and to the Messiah, there's gonna be, he breaks the 77s down a little bit. And we're not gonna get into the weeds here, But he says there's gonna be seven sevens. That's 49 years. That's how long it took for them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Took 49 years to rebuild the walls so that Jerusalem could be a city again. And then he says, and then there's gonna be 62 more sevens. And so when you add the sevens, 49 plus the 62, you've now got uh, 483 years from the time that the decree goes out until the Messiah is made known. And I'm not, I am not—I was gonna put up a bunch of charts and stuff, but you can do it on your own. You got Google, but here's the idea. From when the decree went out until this 483 years later, that's roughly the time when Jesus began his earthly ministry, when the heavens opened up in his baptism and the Father said, this is my son, whom he is well-pleased, and the Holy Spirit came and landed on him and came into him. Marking. This is the Messiah. This is the one who's gonna accomplish all this that happened. Daniel goes on to say, and we're not gonna get into the weeds of it, but he goes on to say that for this last, that's, 400, that's 483 years. What about the last seven years? He says the last seven years, the Messiah, the Prince, is gonna make a strong covenant with the people of Israel for, for seven more years. So starting when Jesus was baptized, his three and a half years of ministry was strictly to who? Who? for the Jew. Remember when the, I think you taught on this, remember when the the Seraphonician woman came up, a, a Gentile, and said, hey, can we have some of this? Can we be a part of this thing that you got here going on for the Jews? And Jesus said, well, what are you doing here? This, is, this isn't this for you, but for the house of Israel. And she said with great faith, well, maybe just a little bit of crumbs that fall from your table will take and so Jesus came to seek and to save that way. He came unto his own, John says, his own, who's his own? The Jews. He came into his own, his focus, his ministry. He never, he never traveled beyond Israel. He didn't go into the Gentile world. He had a few inter- interactions with some Gentiles, but his ministry, his covenant, his, his, his time was spent trying to appeal to the Israelites themselves and the, Daniel says that at the middle of that last seven-year period, in the middle of it, there will be an end of sacrifices and offerings. And in the middle of that last seven and a half years was when Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah, was crucified. And the temple veil was torn in half, ending the sacrificial system in the, in the temple. And then roughly another three and a half years, the end of that last seven-year period, 490 years, is approximately the time when Stephen that I just talked about, Stephen himself was stoned, And he said, this is not about buildings. This is not about temples. This is not about uh, that of, of this world. It's about something that he has done within. And in that moment, you begin to see the gospel being spread to the Gentiles through Peter, through Paul, and the gospel going out because the 490 years had concluded about the time of Stephen's death. So Daniel was looking for a deliver, looking for deliverance, looking for the restoration of the city. We want, a, we want to reclaim this national pride that we once had. But God had something so much better, so much better. It's not just about forgiving you and getting back to a city. It's about ending transgressions, ending sin, ending the accounting of iniquities completely and ushering in everlasting righteousness, bringing no longer a prophet to speak this, but God himself living in you and you who believe will actually be the holy place for God himself to dwell. Our journey marker this morning, very simply, is Jesus the Messiah Remember, this is Christmas. This is all. Why did he come? He came into this realm so that we, who believe, could be his most holy dwelling place. You see, here's some irony. It's irony for us, or it's just—it just doesn't make any sense. What what is a? Um, uh there's a phrase for that. Maybe it'll come to me um, later. But you you cannot celebrate the coming of Jesus at Christmas and not also celebrate and claim and um, embrace the fact that he has made you holy once and for all. You see, so many uh, in Christianity, we embrace the birth of Jesus, the little baby in the manger, fantastic, awesome, but we've got to see what he came to do. He came to put away sin, he came to end transgressions, and he came to anoint you his very holy dwelling place. So what have we seen this morning? The work of Jesus on the cross in the end of that 490 years has ended transgression, it's ended sin, it's ended iniquity. The work of Jesus has made us perpetually righteous by his finished work I love number three, God now speaks to us, not by prophets or priests, but he speaks to us by Jesus himself within. And lastly, number four, we are now the holy dwelling place of God himself. So this might not be a typical Christmas passage, but I think it's very important to us to realize that Jesus didn't just show up one day and swaddling clothes in a manger and shepherds. We'll get into that next week. We're going to talk about that. But that, that didn't just happen one day. There was a plan in place, and there was this man named Daniel who realized that because of his iniquity and the sin of his people, they were rejected by God, and they needed rescuing, true, real rescuing. And, and Gabriel basically came and said, hey, yeah, you had not seen anything yet. In 490 years, something's going to happen so incredible that's going to absolutely blow your socks off. So hopefully that made some sense to see the bigger picture of what has been going on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ even came. This was all in motion. It didn't just start one day in Bethlehem.
0: Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.